I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles again to Colossians chapter 3 as we continue our CQFS, that is COVID Quarantine Family Seminar here in Colossians chapter 3. In God's providence, we've come to this chapter and this section of this chapter uh, pretty much at the beginning of this whole quarantine season. And so as families are together there at home, uh, locked down, uh, locked in, in a sense, we pray that God will use this to bless and improve and deepen those ties that bind families together in love. And so let me read then Colossians three eighteen to 21. Please follow in your Bibles as I read. And our focus is verse 21 this evening. And then we'll turn to Ephesians 6 and read the parallel passage there. Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, that they may not lose heart. Then Ephesians chapter 6, just now to fathers and children, children and fathers. Ephesians 6, verse 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray that God would help us as we take up especially the statement, the command in Colossians, the what I would call the negative duty of fathers, what they're not to do. And we'll focus on that, uh, Lord willing, this Lord's Day evening and next Lord's Day as well. So let's ask for God's help. Our Father, as we consider the duty of fathers, we come before you as sinners. We acknowledge that this commandment, this prohibition in your word exposes our failure. And we come to you as our father, a perfect father, a sinless father, a loving father who never errs in his discipline, admonition, instruction, loving, compassionate, raising of us, your children. We ask that you would teach us how to do that with our own children. For those who are already uh, grown, we ask that you would help them then on their own now to be those fathers they should be, the next generation. For those of us who are uh, past those days of active parenting, we ask that you would help us then to be good examples and models and instructors that our children might avoid our mistakes. And so we ask for help in every area as we consider this passage this evening, acknowledging our need, acknowledging that we depend upon you, coming with thankful hearts that there is grace and pardon and forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with dependence upon that grace, trusting only in the merit of your Son, 
We ask for your help through Jesus our Savior. Amen. And so as uh, we've looked at these verses, verse 18 through 21, back in Colossians chapter 3, we've seen, first of all, the duty of wives. The basic duty of the wife is to be subject to her husband. Then the basic duty of the husband is to love his wife. And the basic duty of children is to be obedient to their parents. Now we come to fathers, and I, I couldn't really say the basic duty, so I had to put a different adjective there, the negative duty of fathers, because it comes as a prohibition, what not to do, do not exasperate or provoke your children with the goal that they may not lose heart. Now, before we go any further, uh, there are a couple questions I want to address. First of all, why fathers? Why doesn't he say parents do not exasperate your children? Why does he focus on fathers? Uh, Well, children are to obey their parents. Going back to verse 20, children be obedient to your parents. So both mother and father have authority over the child. But remember that the father is the ultimate authority. Just as we saw that the wife is to be subject to her husband, she is to be subject to him in his leadership of the home, even with respect to the children. And so we come to fathers, verse 21, because they have the ultimate authority in the home. But perhaps, as some commentary suggested, perhaps he addresses fathers because it's more of a problem for men. Uh, And I I think that's probably the case in the experience of many of us, that fathers have much more potential to really mess things up. Uh, Mothers naturally may be more loving, more tender, and fathers may tend to be more provocative. Now, that doesn't mean that mothers never make mistakes. That doesn't mean that mothers never provoke their children to anger or exasperate them. But I think it's more of a problem for fathers. To really mess things up takes a dad. Uh, Well, dads, that means take special heed. But as we come to this passage then and try to break it down, I have four things. And just as last week when it was a word to the children, I started with a message for parents. This week, when it's a message to parents, fathers in particular, I want to start with the word to kids. Okay, so kids, I, uh, there's still more for you. So still listen in, and I want to address you first. But then we'll go to what does it mean to provoke children? What does it mean? Do not exasperate or provoke your children. Then thirdly, I have to go into more detail than is in this text itself. Uh, How does that happen? How do fathers provoke their children? How children are provoked by parents? And then the fourth thing will be how to avoid how to obey the commandment and avoid provoking them. All right, so first of all, then, a word to kids. Uh, Kids, I told you, listen. So here I want to address you first. Why? Because it would be easy for you to take what I'm going to say now almost as ammunition against your parents. Kids, listen to me. First of all, your dad is not perfect. Okay? Your mom isn't either, for that matter. But you need to understand that. Your dad's going to make mistakes. And that doesn't then give you an excuse 
in the next place, to disobey. It doesn't contradict, it doesn't cancel out. Verse 20, well, my dad provoked me, so that means I'm right to be provoked. It doesn't give you an excuse to be angry. In fact, we read, if we went back to Ephesians chapter 4, be angry and do not sin, well, that, that's a pretty tall order for a kid, for anybody. Be angry without sin. When we go to James chapter 1, it says, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. So it doesn't excuse your anger. <laughs> My dad, don't take what I'm going to say today as ammunition against your dad. You provoked me. Don't go there. Don't play that game with your dad. He may make mistakes. He will. Take my word for it. I'm a dad. But still, children, obey your parents. This is right. It's right. Okay? So kids, uh, I hope this little word, you know, dads, you can remind your kids that I said this. But don't use it against them either. This is not a battle. This is a loving uh, process of all of us growing together. All right, so the next place then. That was my little preface there that I wanted to say to the children. First of all then, uh, second of all then, what does it mean to provoke children? Let's look at the passage first of all and explain the words. All right, so it says, Fathers, do not exasperate or provoke your children that they may not lose heart. And the word provoke, it's only used twice in the New Testament. And we have the other example of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I, I like to get the flavor of words by comparing other passages where the word is used, especially if it's not a common word. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, in verse 2, this is what we read, and going back to verse 1, this is in that uh, whole passage where Paul is talking about Christian giving. And he says, For it is superfluous for me to write you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Now there's the word. Your zeal has provoked most of them. Now obviously in 2 Corinthians 9-2, it's provoked in a good way. Now the same word is not used in Hebrews chapter uh, 10 about provoking one another to love and good deeds, but it's the same kind of idea. Provoke here is used in a good sense in 2 Corinthians. Your zeal stirred them up. It provoked them. It pushed them to a good work, to giving to the needs of the saints. But now when we come to Colossians chapter 3, and speaking to, speaking to fathers, don't push your children over the brink into an angry, sullen mood. Don't exasperate them. And so this provoking can be uh, good or bad. In this case, in Colossians, it's bad. Stir up, irritate, embitter. And that's the idea. And then the parallel passage also helps us here when we look at the word that's used in Ephesians. It's a little different. Ephesians chapter 6, fathers, verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger. 
A different word for provoke, but in fact, the whole, it's one word. Don't anger your children. Don't provoke them to anger, to arouse them. Now, mostly this word is used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament to speak of Israel provoking God to anger by their sin of idolatry by their sin in general, but especially that sin of idolatry. God says, you've provoked me to anger by your sin. And so when we transfer that to parents dealing with children, let's be honest, most of the times fathers provoke their children to anger, somehow sin is involved. Maybe it's the father's anger, and we'll see when we come to all of those causes or ways and means that parents can, in, can provoke their children. Yes, it's sin in the father or the mother, for that matter, that would provoke a child to anger. Now, going back to Colossians, what's going to be the result of provoking children? Well, it says, do not exasperate or provoke your children that they may not lose heart. That they may not lose heart. Now, again, we have a word that's very rarely used. In fact, this case, this word is only used here in the New Testament. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which helps us to fill in and get a flavor for what the word means, losing heart, uh, it's used nine times, uh, but not usually as a direct translation of a Hebrew word that has the same meaning. It's kind of a paraphrase. We have a paraphrase that gives us a flavor in Deuteronomy 28.65. So you may want to turn there. This is in the midst of the curses that Israel would face if indeed they disobey. Deuteronomy chapter 28. The consequences of disobedience for them would be 2865, all right? So that the Lord would would, uh, scatter them among the nations. They would serve other gods, which they had not known. Verse 65, and among those nations... You shall find no rest, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. Now the Septuagint puts it this way. Moreover, among those nations he will not give you quiet, neither by any means shall the sole of your foot have rest. And the Lord shall give you there a misgiving heart and failing eyes and a wasting or melting soul. The word is the the misgiving heart, this heart that's lost all hope. A heart that's in despair, it's melting, failing eyes. You get the picture. There they are. They're far from their their home in, in the promised land. They've been taken captive, and there they're wasting away. There they've lost all hope. There they have a misgiving, despairing heart, failing eyes, a wasting, melting soul. Now, in other words, when fathers provoke their children... Grind them down. Cause them to be angry inside. What happens? The child is brought to despair. 
no hope, failing eyes, misgiving heart, a melting soul. And so when children are exasperated in this way, what happens? The wind goes out of their sails. They want to give up. There's no more sparkle in their eyes. They say to themselves in their hearts, what's the use? No matter what I do, I'm wrong. But you see, when we discipline our children, we don't want to crush their spirit and leave them dispirited. We want to correct them. We want to break their stubborn will so that they are malleable, so that they are obedient, so that they cheerfully obey. Remember, kids, that I said that's how you are to obey. Cheerfully, promptly, completely, universally. We don't want to break their spirit. We don't want to crush them so that they are dispirited, distressed in that way as we see described in Deuteronomy 28 verse verse 65 the relationship of love would be broken the open communication is cut off now there's a sullen angry disheartened dispirited child who can't wait to get up grow up and get out of the house like my grandfather who had a father who was apparently a drunkard never met my great-grandfather But uh, it was told to me that my grandfather just couldn't wait to grow up. In fact, he ran away from home when he was a teenager. And he said, when I get big, I'm going to go back and beat him up. Well, in God's providence, he never got bigger than his dad. So he didn't fulfill that desire. But that's what happened. He was crushed. He couldn't wait to get out of there. You don't want that to happen to your kids. You don't want them to have that attitude that I just can't wait to leave this house. But if you provoke them in this way, that will be the result. Now, there's just one more thing I want to note before we come to the ways and means. And that is, who is it that is being described here? It's the fathers who are provoking their own children, your own dear children. As a father, we read in the Psalms, loves his, in Proverbs, has compassion on his children. Excuse me, Psalm 103. Has compassion on his children. So the Lord pities those who fear him. Are you a pattern of a father who has pity on his own dear children, compassion and love? Or are you the father who crushes them, so oppresses them, exasperates them, that they can't wait to leave your house? No, it's your own dear children. That little child you held when he was a baby. Growing up, as he said his first words, and maybe his first word was, Daddy! His eyes lit up when he saw you. It's your own dear child. Don't provoke him. Don't crush him. Don't stir him up in this way. Now, that leads us in the next place, and this is going to be the bulk, really, of the message this week and, Lord willing, next week, is how are children provoked by their parents? And I have at least 11 ways. And, you know, 
it was interesting. I taught this topic as a Sunday school in the Philippines some years ago, and I asked the, the congregation, so what other ways? And they came up with some more suggestions, and no doubt you could too, so just email me, uh, maybe from your experience, how you were provoked by your father, or maybe your experience, how you provoked your children and subsequently repented and had to deal with it. But uh, there are many ways that this happens, and I tried then to go to the scriptures and not just have some you know pop psychology uh, pouring into one little verse a lot of pop psychology but I tried to get out of the scriptures examples illustrations precepts principles of how this happens and the first way I think that happens so frequently is fathers you can provoke your children by doing nothing I call that the absentee father, neglect, in other words. So if you want a heading, subheading, sub-subheading, well, we're not going to go to all that. But, but let's just call this neglect. The first way that you can provoke your children is to neglect them. And one of the worst problems in modern society is that fathers, except for now with this COVID quarantine, are out of the house for nearly all day and never see their children. They may leave for work early, especially in this metropolitan area, having a long commute. They come home 9 p.m., so they leave before the kids are up. They get home, maybe the kids are in bed or they're finishing their homework, and uh, the kids miss their dad. He's an absentee father. Now, what example do you see in the Bible of this? Well, I couldn't come up with one where it concretely said, well, here's an absentee father, and this is a, a terrible thing what happened. But I think we can see this in the family of King David. It doesn't ever say that David didn't spend time with his children, but neither does it say... <laughs> Neither does it give a, a picture of a wonderful, close-knit family when we look at David's family. Uh, we had multiple wives, which is going to be a complicating factor in any family. You can't really imagine them all gathered around one big table uh, and enjoying each other. But uh, as you see those sons of King David growing up, you don't get a picture that they were trained well with a good model as David would spend time with them. He was busy with the kingdom. He was busy with his wars. And later on, he was busy in his sin. Uh, and what was the result? Well, you can see it with Absalom. You can see it with Abiathar. You can see it... Uh, uh, um, yeah. I think I got the name wrong. What's his name? Abijah. Excuse me. Uh, Adonijah. That was. I knew it began with A. Adonijah. Well, we'll come to Adonijah in just a minute. But absentee fathers. But then, not only absentee, but then they're still under this heading of neglect. There would be what I would call busy signal fathers. The father who's at home, but still has no time for his kids. He's got his internet, he's got his news, he's got his TV or his Netflix, and uh, he's reading, and he's busy. Uh, a statistic I heard uh, some while ago was that in the U.S., fathers spend on the average less than 30 seconds a day with their children. 
Now, I, I can't quote the, where this statistic came from. I heard it, but I'm not really surprised. I wouldn't take me back if that were the case. But I think we can say fathers don't spend enough time with our sons. The son comes to the father. Let's play. I know, son. And maybe it, remem- it brings to your memory that song um, of some years ago, The Cat's in the Cradle. And I don't think I can read it because it might make me cry. But I'll read part of it here. My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way. But there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking for I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, not today. I've got a lot to do. He said, that's okay. And he walked away, but his smile never dimmed. It said, I'm going to be like him, yeah. You know, I'm going to be like him. And you know, the rest of the song, if you don't, you can look it up. But the kid goes away to college, comes home, and the dad says to his kid from home, Son, I'm proud of you. Can you sit for a while? He shook his head and he said with a smile, What I'd really like, Dad, is to borrow the car keys. See you later. Can I have them, please? And the point of the song is that the kid did grow up just like his dad. He gets married, he has kids. His father calls him up, said, can we get together? He says, Dad, I'm busy. The kids have the flu. Uh, Sorry, maybe some other time. But the busy signal father. It's a terrible thing to do to a kid. Provoke him dishearten him. So kids that are neglected by their fathers, never never any time for them, never home, never any time, that will exasperate, dishearten a child. Another thing that can dishearten a child is what I would call under-discipline. Now, you might think that this would not provoke a child, but that he'd love it. He'd really, you know, enjoy not having a lot of rules. And uh, that would uh, be something that he would want to have as his situation. But that's not the case. Having no rules actually also disheartens and provokes the child. It sends the signal, I don't care enough to really take the effort to correct you. And here we have David with Adonijah. That's, that is the name. If we look at 1 Kings chapter 1, under discipline is what contributed to this situation. 1 Kings chapter 1 and verses 5 and 6. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And of course, we know that the kingdom was promised to Solomon, the son of Bathsheba. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. And his father had never crossed him at any time by asking, why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man. And he was born after Absalom. Why have you done so? Never crossed him. Never corrected him. He was allowed to go his own way. 
And we have the same thing with Eli and his sons. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. And you know that the boy Samuel is now there in the temple with Eli, ministering to the Lord. And the word of the Lord comes to Samuel. Samuel, Samuel, the Lord calls him as a message for Eli through Samuel. And listen to what it was, verse 13. Verse 11, And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am going to do a thing in Israel at, with, at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. He did not correct them. He did not discipline them. And what was the result, both for Adonijah and for Eli's sons? It was death. There's a way that seems right to a man. A man who goes to his own way, he's going to be in trouble. And these sons were never corrected. And it was under discipline. Maybe they didn't get angry with their dad, but certainly it did not end well. Under discipline is not a good way to raise your children. It's going to end up in their destruction. But then on the other hand, there's what I would call over-discipline. Over-discipline. Too many rules. And too many rules can frustrate and provoke children. They get the feeling everything they do is wrong. They can't do anything right, so why bother? I'm just going to give up. Do this, it's wrong. I do the other thing, it's wrong. It's always wrong. Now, the biblical example of this that came to my mind is what we see in 2 Corinthians with the man who fell into sin. And okay, kids do wrong, and they do need to be corrected, and they do need rules. But the Apostle Paul says of this man in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he was corrected, he was disciplined, and then he says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Sufficient. All right, you've punished him, that's enough. You don't have to grind his nose into it. And so, over-discipline... Overcorrection, harshness in discipline can lead to what? Him losing heart, excessive sorrow, being overwhelmed. Now, in fact, I think it's a proper observation that too many rules ultimately leads to under-discipline. Under-discipline. Because the rules end up being ignored. The parents can't possibly enforce them all. They get worn out. And so they say, ah, never mind this time. And so it leads to under-discipline and inconsistent discipline, which we'll come to next, uh, when you have too many rules. And here I'll give you the example of God. How many commandments 
did God give? He gave 10. Now, of course, you read the rest of Exodus, you read Leviticus, and there are a lot of other laws. Uh, There's the ceremonial law, there's the civil law. There are a lot of things that flesh out and give case studies of how to apply those 10 commandments. But just for an illustration, God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, he doesn't give 101 specifics where you can't light a fire, you can't carry anything that's too heavy, you can't walk more than the distance from here to there, which the Pharisees did. And we see Jesus in the Gospels continually bumping up against these Pharisaical additions to God's law. God did not give too much, too heavy, too restrictive a code, even though in the Old Covenant we find that the Apostle Peter does say this was a burden neither us nor our fathers could bear because of all the ceremonial laws as well as the civil laws, especially ceremonial. But still, the moral code is basically just right. And so, fathers, don't exasperate your children by over discipline. A rule for this, a rule for that, so that they're boxed in and never can do anything right. Then, as I said, over-discipline leads to inconsistent discipline. When a child finds that one day something is wrong, and the next day it's okay, he got away with it. And then the next day again, he gets spanked for it. He said, well, wait, wait a minute. I can't figure this out. But dad, I did it yesterday and you didn't spank me. And the father says, but I said it's wrong. That settles it. <laughs> Don't be surprised if the child goes away dispirited and losing heart. Now, again, our example here is God. God is absolutely consistent. And when God says, thou shalt not, he means it. It's wrong today. It's wrong next year. It's wrong next century. It's wrong. When something is right and good, it's not going to be wrong tomorrow. So when we read Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We still have a day of rest, a Sabbath, which means day of rest. We still have that today. God is not inconsistent. He is a perfect example. He says what he means and he means what he says. He meant it yesterday, means it today. And so, fathers, we have to confess we're not always consistent but God is, and there's our goal. You shall be holy, you shall be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, let's go on. I wasn't sure how far I would get with these uh, ways in which parents provoke their children, but I would have to add the next one uh, with very great grief, and that is by physical abuse physical abuse. When a father or mother spanks a child in rage, maybe even physically injures the child, it leaves lasting scars, not just physically, but on the soul of the child. 
He remembers. He remembers for a long time. He may remember till his dying day. That time, maybe it was only once, when his father or mother flew into a rage, uncontrolled, and lashed out. Here again, we have biblical example, which causes us to shrink back, and yet we see ourselves in it in a way. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, it's King Saul this time who's the bad example. In 1 Samuel 20, there's that time when David is suspicious that Saul is against him, and he arranges with Jonathan that he's going to be absent from the feast. And Jonathan will find out how Saul is going to respond and what will be his attitude towards David. And at that feast, let's see what happened. Let me pick up the story. Verse 25, and so, verse 24. So David hid in the field. This is second, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 24. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. And the king sat on his seat as usual, the seat by the wall. Then Jonathan rose up, and Abner sat down by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day, for he thought, it is an accident. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. And it came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan then answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem, for he said, please let me go since our family has a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now, if I have found favor in, favor in your sight, please let me get away that I may see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Now, pause a second. Has Jonathan sinned in any of this? Well, perhaps he's made up a story and we're not going to really deal with whether he lied or not to his father and whether that was justified. That's not the point. But look at the response of Saul. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now, send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then... Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Well, it's pretty obvious by this point what the attitude of Saul is. But look what he does to discipline his son for what? For something that wasn't even a sin. He hurls his spear in rage. At his son. And what's the result? Let's read the next verse. Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. The result is he's provoked. He's provoked to anger and he leaves. He's disheartened. He was grieved, pierced in his heart by his father's not just attitude 
but his father's action. Physical abuse. Now, you know, you may think as a single that you've really gotten a handle on this anger thing. That you've really gained a large measure of patience. That the fruit of the Spirit is manifested in you to such a large degree. Love, joy, peace, patience, or long-suffering. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You've got that. But then when you have kids, uh, you find quickly that there is something in that little bundle of joy that can really get under your skin. And you respond in anger. And maybe in your discipline, it's the anger that's in control and not a just principle of dealing with your child according to his sin. But it's your sin of anger that is in control. And physical abuse may be the result. That will crush a child. And so when we go back to Colossians, do not provoke your children lest they lose heart. This is one way, one of the chief ways in which this takes place. Well, you know, there's physical abuse, but as we read this passage, this also is an example of verbal abuse. Perhaps even worse than physical abuse, or perhaps more common anyway, such as calling the child. Look at what Saul says to his son, Jonathan. You son, verse 30, we read it. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. So not only is he saying something painful, abusive to Jonathan, he's abusing Jonathan's mother. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Verbal abuse leaves scars calling the child stupid, worthless, all manner of evil names. Jay Adams tells a story in one of his counseling books of a man who was such a workaholic, so determined to succeed and make a lot of money that he was destroying his own family. Why was he such a workaholic? Because his father had called him worthless. His father has said repeatedly, you'll never amount to anything. His father's dead. But he's still trying to prove that his father was wrong. It left a deep scar, disheartened him. And here, Jonathan is provoked. And he goes away angry. Physical abuse, verbal abuse, again, the result is the same. He goes away angry. He's provoked. And he's dispirited. He's grieved. And so, fathers, beware of physical abuse. Beware of verbal abuse. Now I'm going to come, and this is probably as far as we'll get today. Well, there are three more that are related, so let's take all three of them. And that is, the next one is favoritism. Favoritism. Of course, the great biblical example, I'm sure you've thought of it already, of a family in which... The father has his favorite, and the mother as well, is the whole chain, Isaac, Jacob, 
Esau, and then Jacob's children as well with his children. Let's think of Isaac. All right. Now, uh, there was only one son of the promise for Abraham, and Abraham recognized that. But Isaac has twins. Boy, what an opportunity for showing favoritism. And these were not identical twins. One was hairy, one was not. So obviously they were not identical. But when we go back in the book of Genesis, and we're not going to read the story because I'm sure that you're mostly familiar with the events. But here is Isaac with his two sons, twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, excuse me, yes. Um, Jacob is this farm boy. He likes to grow stuff. He's kind of a homebody. Esau is the hunter. So he goes out and he hunts game and he brings back his game. And not only does he know how to hunt it, he knows how to cook it and prepare it in a delicious way. And Isaac loves Esau. Now, Rebecca, mom at home, she loves Jacob because he can plant and sow. He's there at home because he just goes to the field and back again. And he can cook a mean lentil stew. And Rebecca's partial to him. And what was the result? Well, you know, this rivalry, you know, of how uh, Jacob steals the birthright. And first of all, he he <laughs> Uh, swindles it out of Esau for a mess of pottage. Esau wrongly gives it away. Then he tricks his father with the uh, cooking of the stew or the the meat, the game, the the goat, and so on. And the end is he has to run away, leaves home, goes away for some years. What a sad thing! Do you want to do that? to your family? Favoritism. And Jacob, he didn't learn the lesson. What does he do? He has 12 sons and a daughter. What does he do with his sons? Well, you know, he, he, he had a favorite wife as well. And so Rachel has two sons, Joseph, and he loves Joseph more than the others. And what's the result of that? Well, they sell Joseph into slavery. Nice brothers, huh? You know, maybe you've got a problem with your brothers, but they haven't sold you into slavery yet. So be thankful for that. Sold as a slave. And and I was trying to picture in my own mind's eye what Jacob was feeling as he's there on the back of a camel, trussed up, and he's looking back, and there are his brothers counting the money. What a bunch, you know, what, what would be in your mind? Bitterness. Well... It is all because of the favoritism of his father for him, his coat of many colors, leading to resentment in his brothers and their broken heart and their uh, actions against him. Now, of course, they meant it for evil, but we know in God's providence, and kids get this, even though your dad's not perfect, remember God is sovereign in his grace, and God can mean even that. For good. Don't lose heart when you think of the Father in heaven. This is so true in so many families today where brothers, it's not just the ordinary sibling rivalry, the sibling squabbles that you know take place in the best of families, but this rivalry of trying to gain the parents' favor. 
I'm thankful for parents that even though we were all convinced that my mom and dad loved my baby sister the best, and before she came along, they loved my sister better than me, and of course my sister thought they loved me better than her, but that worked out pretty evenly uh, in the long run, and we could never really prove it that they had favorites because they didn't act that way. They treated us very evenly. But so common to see favorites in families. Don't let it happen in yours. Now, what this favoritism can lead to is the next thing, and that is what I call unfair comparison. Unfair comparison. One is compared to the other in an unfavorable way. Your sister got all A's. What's wrong with you? Your brother's on the basketball team, and he's so good, and you're so clumsy. And so the one who's not so good in this comparison is going to end up feeling worthless, insecure, lose heart. Uh, It will provoke him one way or another. Now, in my experience as a pastor, counseling over many years with different people, there's a, uh, it's very difficult for a child grown up to overcome this sense of inferiority because of unfair comparison. Now, don't make excuses for yourself. As I said again, there's grace. Move on. Get over it. But you see, God made each of your children as an individual. They're not cookie cutters. They're not stamped out. Even though they came from the same womb, it is amazing how different they can be. One is good in this area. One's good in that area. Don't do this unfair comparison game with your children. Remember that each one is formed by God according to his pattern, his sovereign purpose. We read of this in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Again, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and each one of your children should be given that instruction from you fathers, You have your gifts. You have your own individual uh, abilities and skills, which your brothers, your sisters don't share. Each one is wonderful. Each one, not not that we're trying to build up some sort of self-esteem thing. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about appreciating how God made each one skillfully wrought by the hand of God, even in their mother's womb. So don't do this unfair comparison game which causes them to be provoked and lose heart. And then the last thing I'll say this evening is unbiblical expectations. Again, related to the idea of uh, favoritism perhaps, but uh, what you expect from each child. 
don't have unbiblical high hopes or expectations of how your children should perform to the extent that if they don't match up, they will be made to feel uh, like they've blown it, like they're useless. Uh, Now, of course, you want to encourage your children, maybe push them a little bit because we're all born with a lazy gene and we all need some encouragement to work harder, to do our best. But uh, the world judges people by their looks, by their brains, by their sports skills. Now, some kids don't do so well in one or the other of those compartments, and some don't do well in any of them, but they have other skills, they have other abilities, and each individual needs to be appreciated for what he or she can do. Maybe that student is a C student. Encourage them to do their best. And if they bring home a B, well, you give them encouragement. That's their ability. Now, some parents are so perfectionist that they never praise their kids. They never encourage them all at all. All they hear is, oh, why did you do that? How did you, why did you get that wrong? It was a, kind of, it was a joke in our family. Uh, you bring home an A minus. And I know my dad's listening. And he would say, why isn't this an A plus? And he had a twinkle in his eye. But, uh, of course, I believe my mom and dad knew that all three of us could do A-plus work if we tried. And so, uh, for us, why is this an A-minus? It was a legitimate question. Um, Now, perfectionism... A perfectionist father who finds fault with everything the child does will lead to a dispirited, discouraged child who's lost heart and says, well, if I did my best, that's what I did, and he doesn't like it, forget about it. Losing heart. Unbiblical expectations. Now, again, they're made by God. He's put them together, and his work is wonderful, as we read here in Psalm 139. Wonderful are your works. Doesn't mean your child is perfect. Doesn't mean David, who wrote the psalm, was perfect. And David knew that right well. Fathers, don't exasperate your children in this way. Accept them as they are. Accept them as God made them. Encourage them to do their best. Encourage them. But don't squash them when they don't measure up to your perfectionist attitude. Now, I want to stop here. We come back, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, and I have more to say. But as we pause here, Let me say some words of application, because I know as I prepared this sermon, when I first taught material, actually from Ephesians, some years ago, it's uh, nearly 30 years ago, my kids were small, now they're grown. And as I look back on the material, the scriptural material here, I'm very aware in myself, and I'm sure 
and fathers whose children are grown, it's very easy for us to say, I blew it. I made a mess. I was, I did this, I did that. Uh, Over-discipline, under-discipline, inconsistent discipline, uh, favoritism. I mean, you name it. What do I do now? Here's what you do now. Come to God, confess it. You come to God for grace. And you thank God that even though you're not a perfect dad, His grace is sufficient. And His grace is able to overrule your mistakes. Because, you know, let's put it this way. If it took a perfect father to see children saved, none of our kids would be saved. That would be impossible. It doesn't depend on you. It's God's grace. And so you, you go to God, you confess your sin, and you ask Him in His mercy, because He's a merciful Father. He's a tender Father. Father, overrule my mistakes. And bless the good fathering that I did, so that my children will not only be saved, but be useful in your kingdom. It'd be very easy, I would think, to hear a sermon like this and go away discouraged, disheartened. It's not my purpose in preaching to do the very thing that I'm telling fathers not to do. And so, fathers, I want to say to you, you're not perfect. God knows that. You know that. Your kids know that. Repent before God, confess to your children, but trust in grace. Go to God for grace. The blood of Jesus, His Son, 1 John 1, 7, cleanses us from all sin. There's pardon, there's a fountain open for sin and uncleanness for fathers as well as for children. Fathers, lay hold of that. But then I also want to address kids. Kids, your dad's not perfect, right? I said that at the beginning. But remember last week, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. You still have that commandment. It doesn't erase it. It doesn't cancel it. It doesn't give you an excuse to disobey it. Children, obey your parents. Don't go to them and say, well, dad, you made me angry. And then think that gives you an excuse to disobey and to be disrespectful. No, be respectful. Maybe, maybe with a tear in your eye, you can say, God, that hurt. See what he says. Maybe you'll say, suck it up. <laughs> but hopefully you'd say it in a nice way. Still kids, obey your parents. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. And fathers and sons, our goal is, fathers and children, parents and children, is that there's such a loving bond, an open communication in your home, that you can have the conversation. Say, how can we have a better family under God, by His blessing, according to His Word? How can I be a better father? I want to be a better father. I want to avoid those things which Pastor Hoffmeyer spoke of that would provoke you. I want to avoid, I want to raise you in the right way 
pray for your dad, kids, because it's not an easy job. And if you're the oldest in your family, guess what? Your dad's never done this before. He's learning. He's learning as he goes along. And you've never done this before. You've never grown up yet before, have you? (laughs) We don't go back to our childhood, although it seems like some people do. Um, Give him some slack. Pray for him and work together that your family will be a happy home. You can ask my kids, I said to them more than once, and probably they would say it was a broken record if you know what that means. Uh, What do you want? You want to have a happy family? Or do you want to have a miserable family? Well, of course the answer is pretty obvious. We want to have a happy family. So let's work on it. I want to work on it as a dad. You work on it as kids. And by the blessing of God, to his glory, we can have a home in which it's a delight to live. And which maybe your friends at school will be envious. Wow, I wish my family did stuff like that. I wish my family showed love to each other like that. I wish my family showed forgiveness to each other like that. Kids, you have a part in this too. Pray for your dads. Love your dads. Encourage your dads and moms, for that matter. Well, I want to close with this one last word. As we think of families in this generation, this time, this, these United States, or this world, really, let's be honest, the family's a mess. And you see broken homes, you see kids that don't even know who their parents are. And if you have a family that's intact, that's already something to be greatly thankful for. But fathers, as you think of your family, as you think of what you have done, mothers too, isn't there a sense of shame as we've covered these matters? Boy, I'll tell you what, when I look back over 30 years ago and think of what happened, there are times... And I won't go into them. I won't tell you all about them. But I have regrets. Things I did and said. Things I didn't do that I should have done. But you know, God's grace is sufficient. What I'm saying to you is this. You need God's grace as a father. How can you be a father in this day and age without God's grace? You need forgiveness, pardon, You need God, the Heavenly Father, the perfect Father, to cleanse you, to wash you, to accept you into His family with a hope of glory. We heard this morning that Jesus ascended on high. But the angels in Acts chapter 1 said, This same Jesus that you've seen taken up for you will come again in the same way. You know, when He comes again, it's going to be a new heavens and new earth in which dwell righteousness. It's going to be much better. You need that. It's much better than the other alternative, which is eternal punishment. And so I I cry to you fathers, mothers, parents, come to God for forgiveness for your parental sins, and he will forgive you. 
pardon you, accept you, cleanse you, change you. You need God's grace, and it's available in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you acknowledging our failure, acknowledging our sin, that we parents have committed parental sins, and we ask for your forgiveness, cleansing, pardon. We thank you that the blood of Jesus, your sin, your son, washes away all our sin. And we ask that you would also direct us to avoid these parental sins that can provoke our children, provoke them to anger, provoke them in such a way that they're exasperated and lose heart. We do not desire that for our children. We desire to see them built up. We desire to see them raised to know you by your grace. You alone can save. But we desire to see them trusting, following the Lord Jesus. Bless our teaching. Bless our example. Bless our evangelism of our own children. Save them. Save them, we cry. The way that seems right to a man is the way of death. Oh, we ask that you would spare our children from that way. Hear us as we plead through Jesus, our mediator. Amen.